if we want to transition from being the divided states of America to the United States of America, then we need to have more intellectual humility, more listening, less canceling. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for Let Friendship Redeem the Republic. This is another program from the Village Square's current season called A Citizen's Guide to Saving America. And before we jump in, I've got a question for y'all. How much time do you spend talking with people who disagree with you ideologically? I have to admit, I thought I was doing much better at this than I am. I definitely have friends and family members who disagree with me, but mostly we avoid political discussions. And I think we make a lot of assumptions about each other along the way. So you'll be happy to know this program is not like that. In this program, you'll meet pairs of friends on opposite sides of the political divide who do talk about politics and who maintain close friendships that deepen and enrich their lives despite their differences. And when it comes to saving democracy, there's lots of evidence that suggests that spending more time in relationships like these can really make a difference. I find these friendships very inspiring, and I'm determined to find a friend like this of my own. More on that at the end. All right, let's get on with Let Friendship Redeem the Republic. Here's Village Square's founder and CEO, Liz Joyner, to kick off the program. Good evening, everyone. My name is Liz Joyner. I'm founder and CEO of the Village Square, and I've got good company tonight. Good evening, everyone. My name is Keith Simmons. I'm the communications director at Florida Humanities, and it's our pleasure to welcome you to tonight's program, Let Friendship Redeem the Republic. This is part of an ongoing series of programs that Florida Humanities is doing in partnership with Village Square to offer digitally opportunities for citizens to connect not only in the great state of Florida, but really all around the country. And we're just so excited to be with you tonight. One of the reasons that I wanted to bring Keith with me this evening is that so much of what the Village Square does has its source in our relationship with Florida Humanities. And that's true not just uh, about us, but it's true about hundreds of organizations across the state of Florida. So we're incredibly grateful for our partnership with them. And I also wanted to say on a personal level that Keith has really just been an extraordinary friend and partner to the Village Square, just kind of a think partner uh, a lot of times. So you all may not have met him yet, and I just wanted you to have the pleasure of doing so. Um, One of the things that we're going to be launching in the next year when we can meet back in person again is something called Flying Pig Academy. And it will be bringing people to Tallahassee to experience programs that we do. And then we'll be teaching them about how we do what we do because we've been uh, become somewhat of a model for the land. And we're going to talk about how brilliant we are to have had this idea of the Flying Pig Academy. But you guys will know that it was actually really Keith's idea originally. So Keith, we're so grateful to you guys. And thanks for 
coming along. So, Keith, anything else you want to say before I introduce you to one of my closest friends and colleagues? I just wanted to thank you again for having the opportunity to join this program um, this evening. You know, when we're talking about the humanities, what it's really about is it's about the stories and ideas that shape the human experience. And this isn't just talking about things like history and literature, and those are important and certainly staples of the humanities, but it's also talking about things in the present. And it's having this ability to have conversations, particularly with people that we may not necessarily agree with. It's recognizing that everyone has a particular story that's fundamental to their experience and to their identity. And it's being able to understand that and appreciate that and and to celebrate that. And I think with everything that has gone on in 2020, and you could certainly name that list, and it seems like 2021 is one of the worst sequels ever. Ever. <laughs> this type of thing matters much more than ever. And so we're really excited to be able to continue to partner with an organization like Village Square. And I can't wait to meet all of our, our panelists this evening and try to learn more about how you've been able to have really interesting friendships across some unique political divides. Well, thank you, Keith. Thanks. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. And um, Keith also asks great questions. So we hope you'll ask some questions when we get along with it. So I want to introduce you to really somebody who has become one of my dearest friends, Dr. Jacob Hess. Jacob, Keith, Keith, Jacob. Hi, Keith. Nice to meet you. And Jacob, so I'm going to give sort of the, his rundown and I'm going to tell you why he's really important to me. So Jacob has a PhD in clinical psychology from University of Illinois and is the co-author of the book, You're Not As Crazy As I Thought, But You're Still Wrong, Conversations Between Devoted Conservative, uh, A Devoted Conservative and a Diehard Liberal, among other books. He's got quite, quite the bio, um, but we'd be here all night long, so I'm just going to move along. He works at a tech company that makes apps that help people overcome pornography addiction, chemical dependency, and depression. And actually, I want to say a word about that because, um, you know, it, it is an extraordinary organization doing incredible work in a really innovative way. And he is also the editor-in-chief at Public Square magazine, so you should drop in there and uh, read his incredible work. He teaches mindfulness-based stress reduction. That may be why he's still my friend, because I think he probably sees some work I have to do there. But, uh, and, and most importantly, he has earned the official title of my work husband, which, which uh, my husband will actually say that my work husband is calling when, when Jacob calls sometimes. And, and, and that happened uh, maybe way long time ago, but together we conceptualized and built Respect and Rebellion in a u- unique speakers bureau that pairs friends and colleagues who disagree politically to come to campuses and communities together. So, and I already already said all the wonderful things that I think about Keith. So, Jake, Jacob is definitely my political opposite. We sort of did a rundown at one point in time about what we thought of, you know, about um, political issues. And I'm not sure we found one we agree on, but, and, and we talked about whether we needed to have a fight. I don't think we've ever had a fight before on this. Jacob, have we? No, no. Thank you for that sweet introduction. It's not really fair, equitable, I think is the word, that to not allow me to say anything. So if I could just say how I first met the Village Square, I was at a national coalition of dialogue and deliberation meeting, 
And there was a bunch of breakout sessions and I wandered into Liz's session about the village square. And I'm, I hate conferences. I'm the kind of person that goes to conferences and just hangs out because I'm away from my toddlers and I'm just trying to rest. But people were laughing in Liz's session and she was talking about civility, but people were laughing. And I was in the back, like, what is going on? Like, you know, as civility is this heavy kind of it's heavy it's even heavier now than it was back then and and i just had what are they called belly laughs in an otherwise conference it's like oh you know like we're talking about they were probably laughing at me no i was laughing <laughs> with you and i was like this is supposed to happen so i fell head over heels for my soon-to-be work wife i guess that's what i say and uh, we started the chapter in Utah of the Village Square and we held a number of events. And so I, I just dearly love the approach and all the work you've done from Tallahassee. So thanks for having me a part of this. And, you know, um, Keith, I got one call the evening of the Capitol riot and that was from Jacob. And he was checking in on me and we both talked about how sad we were. And it's weird because I think one of the things that, it you know, strikes me about about a world where we have fewer and fewer relationships with people who don't agree with us politically is we can just kind of like decide what we think they think. And it's so often wrong. And I don't know, that was just a really meaningful call to me. You know, I cried some that day and, and we kind of, we, we were sad together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that Jacob, that you guys had that conversation. And I think that one of the things I hope we've learned as a country is that we have to be able to have these conversations before any type of crisis moment emerges. And what I love is what you guys had started, started with respect and rebellion. It's first of all, it's just such a cool title and that concept, but it's really this idea, and I think everyone that I suspect is going to be speaking tonight, everyone loves democracy, and everyone believes in the democratic and the, the democratic enterprise in America. And you can hold your ideas and your opinions really close to the chest, but then you can also really listen to what someone else believes, and you can respect that while still really talking about the things that you fundamentally believe. And it's not easy. It requires practice. And it requires, I think, a long time to build those relationships. But I think it's great to hear, knowing what's gone into your relationship, that it's possible. And that it doesn't take, you know, we're all having this ability to do that. And so I'm just really excited to hear more about that. But just that initial, that outreach and that conversation, because I think, with the Capitol riots, it was very easy for us to go to our corners. And, and I think it was emotional for a lot of Americans for a lot of different reasons. But there is that necessity to process that and to come out better on the other side. And I think with individuals like the two of you, that's very much a possibility. And that's what just makes me so excited about programs like this. That was beautiful. I, I just just am a little about that day, Liz. I remember just, you know, being in the emotion of it and just thinking, I really want to know what Liz thinks. I really want to know what she's feeling right now. I'm tired of just hearing what Tucker Carlson thinks or what Tucker Carlson says 
Liz really thinks. <laughs> yeah. Like I wanted to, like, I, I was hungry to hear from you. And the, the common experience I've had after a phone call with Liz from Florida to Utah is feeling encouraged and more hopeful that, you know, if we can do this, if, if Liz and I can do this, maybe a lot more people can do this. And maybe it doesn't have to be the way things are. There's a, a girl who participated in our Village Square programs who told me she struggled with depression for years, but after getting involved and starting to feel heard and have a chance to hear others, she felt less depressed. And so I think you, you need to have a new angle for your marketing that, you know, was <laughs> it as the next generation of antidepressant? <laughs> <laughs> your old one isn't working try this because this but speaking seriously now as a psychologist being angry for a long time depresses us it just does and so if I can I, I still have a lot of concerns about the broader picture but if I can like work out stuff with Liz and Phil and Tracy it's like it works out of my system a little and I, I get less scared so it really it, I'm, I'm really not joking yeah, I, I I actually buy that. We may not be able to use it in marketing, but I, but I agree. And I think we're we're like so isolated, and we're we're losing our connection to our communities in ways that make all that worse. So anyway, yes, we have to say goodbye to Keith to be able to now say hello to a couple of really incredible people we've met. Jacob and I have met along the way. Keith, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you soon. I'll probably talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> so. It is my pleasure now to bring in a pair of really incredible humans that Jacob and I met, Bernie and Justin. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Justin, and Justin's going to introduce Bernie and vice versa. Welcome, gentlemen. Awesome. We're glad to be here. So I'm going to introduce my friend, Bernie. So Bernie was born in Haiti, but came to America at an early age to, to flee political persecution with his family. And he was raised in Naples, Florida, where I grew up also in Collier County, where we met and became friends. And he went on to college in the D.C. area, went to law school in Florida at Stetson. He is a brilliant man, a former assistant state attorney named 30 Under 30 Rising Politics in Florida. So he ran for a representative seat and he currently works as the development director of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Tampa. And he also is a political news analyst for Bay News 9. And I remember when he told me when he was 10 years old that one day he would be governor of Florida and I still believe him. So that's Bernie. I do too, by the way, Justin, I believe him. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Too kind, too kind. So, uh, so yeah, Justin is my, you know, childhood friend, you know, he's a pastor, a change agent who's uh, been very instrumental in leadership and in faith-based institutions, uh, not only here in Florida in central Florida, the Bay area out in California, and currently now in Northern uh, New Jersey, you know, he has leveraged the power of podcasting as a personal growth hacking resource, you know, to bring communities together. And he is the host uh, and producer of the Solo Scriptural Shortcast that is available on Alexa, Google Assistant, and Bixby, and is a regular contributing moderator on Clubhouse to the 5,000 plus members of the Podcast Secrets Revealed group. As a where, where he got his fame, literally, is with the acapella group called Committed. He mastered the art of performing under pressure before millions of people 
and emerge as the season two champion in NBC's The Sing-Off. That's where you might recognize Justin. This group that he's a part of uh, has been nominated for many awards, including the NAACP Image Award, uh, the Contemporary Acapella Recording Award, and even a Grammy Award nomination. And their voices have been featured on two motion picture soundtracks for the Amazon Prime video, Streetlight Harmonies. It's a documentary that shines uh, light on the doo-wop genre. You know, as a voiceover artist, he voices the vision of others uh, for audio drama projects and commercials, and he believes in being a voice for the voiceless. Uh, my friend, Justin Pierre. Welcome, you guys. It's been a pleasure to get to know you guys. Likewise, Liz. Yeah, every time, every time I hear your story, I think, who's the childhood friend that I, have, I need to call up? <laughs> See the, the affection you two have. So if I could start with the first question, one just to pose to get things going. We're, we're obviously in Black History Month, and the two of you have very similar backgrounds, but have come to very different conclusions about your guiding ideas about what is best for our country, a country that you both love dearly. I wonder if you could start by talking about how you got to those different positions. So I'll, I'll kick it off. Uh, you know, my viewpoints, you know, come from my experiences, as I think a lot of people would relate to. You know, as um, as Justin mentioned, you know, I came to this country at the age of seven, moved here with my parents and an older brother, and we sought political asylum, was granted political asylum due to the instability, political instability and violence that was occurring in Haiti at the time. So grew up in Southwest Florida. Uh, and initially, we grew up in a small town called Immokalee, Florida. And and it's, uh, you know, it's not the best place, <laughs> let's just say, as far as, um, you know, communities are concerned. You know, it's um, an area known for high crime. It's an area known for people who are struggling uh, and to make it. And it's right outside of Naples, uh, which is a much more affluent, you know, community by, by and large. But what I saw, I had the front row seat, basically, to the American dream. You know, as soon as we came to this country, I saw both of my parents immediately literally get to work, working two jobs, sometimes three jobs at a time, making an effort to learn the language. And they never made any excuses, never expected anything for free, never accepted anything for free. Everything was hard work. And they told my brothers and I that in this country, if you work hard and you play by the rules, you know, all things are possible. And, and so this was ingrained with me early on that I was in a special place in this country, having left a, a country where you know, there was so much instability. And when we're living in Immokalee, Florida, we're living actually with my uncle and, and his family. And I saw the progression, you know, living in that home with his family, you know, it was crowded space. I remember when we got our first place, our first home, it was a mobile home, actually. And I saw that as progression. I was very happy. You know, we were living in our own place. I mean, the, it barely had air conditioning, you know. And I remember then from there, we moved into an apartment still in Immokalee, Florida. And I, and I thought that was great, you know, seeing the, the progression. From there, we moved into Naples, East Naples, a very working class community, lived in a duplex. And, and I thought, wow, we're moving up. You know, this is kind of a home, it's half of a home, but it's, it seems like we're, we're rising up in the world. And then within six years, within six years of coming to the country, my parents became homeowners, you know, in the same home uh, that they have today. And, and, I, and I look at these experiences and just thought about, you know, there's really no excuses, you know, in this country. You know, if you work hard and you apply yourself, here we are, first-generation immigrants, 
barely knew the language, didn't know the language. I remember sitting in class not knowing what the students were saying, what teachers were saying, and we were able to achieve so much uh, to the point where, you know, as, as Justin mentioned, you know, I went on to graduate college, became an attorney, served the state as an assistant state attorney. My dad, who would go to school at night, gradually, you know, as he's working multiple jobs, became a college graduate himself. And, and we saw so many gains, you know, uh, in this country. And so that established my conservative underpinnings. And when I saw some fellow Americans that were struggling, and people do struggle, but I always believe that, you know, it's possible because if we were able to do it, others can do it. And, and, our, and our policy should be to protect the opportunities for people to swing for the fences and not to create these programs that keep people down and comfortable in their, in their, in their present situations and, and, and with hard work, all things are possible. So this has kind of been my, 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 my guiding light, you know, as far as how I became a conservative, my experience. And I'll share my story. I was born and raised in Florida, but my parents, of course, came from Haiti. And everyone knows that Florida is considered like the swing state of swing states. And we're called the class clown, thanks to Florida man. But, you know, growing up in Florida, there are lots of diverse people, d different ethnicities, different frames of thought. And I, went, I met people from all walks of life. But through my own reading and historical searching, I studied the history of what America has done to people of African descent. And so between my personal study and my personal experiences, for example, driving while black, being pulled over, questioned, and at the end of the interaction with the police officer, the police officer telling me, stay out of trouble, boy. And I'm like 30 years old. So these encounters and what I see others going through in America have kind of shaped my political viewpoints. And so I went to an HBCU in Alabama Oakwood University, and I enjoyed my time there. And from there, I went to graduate school to go to seminary, which is the professional training for pastors. And so I returned home to Florida to pastor in Highlands County, which is an area called Avon Park, very conservative area. And it was a tough assignment. I did my best to serve and to love the people. But the truth was that congregation was not ready for a black pastor. And so eventually when things were happening in society, when Philando Castile was was killed and I mentioned what happened, I mentioned the race relation issues in America. And the very next week, the church made it clear that I would not be pastoring there anymore. So here I was trying to serve, trying to love, trying to be a change agent. And I was done with that assignment. And so I literally went from there, from that rejection and moved to the Bay Area, the most progressive bubble, one of the most progressive bubbles in America. And that was like a season of healing for me. I was involved in the community and doing my part to provide leadership in the communities that were distressed and also in the faith-based sector. So I worked at a church. And from there, I moved to New Jersey, got married. And now in a month, I'm expecting a beautiful daughter, my wife and I. And so I'm excited that my little daughter my daughter Elizabeth will grow up and say one day that the VP looks like me. But, you know, long story short, you know, I know that, you know, people of color have experienced so much in this country. And I don't believe that the system is broken. I believe that the system is working as designed. And so I try to use my voice and my platform 
to highlight those issues to help bring about change. And so that's how I ended up how I am. And Jacob, uh, before we move on, just to kind of bring it back to the, the original point, contextualize it as far as race is concerned. You know, I first started becoming interested in politics, you know, late in elementary school and towards middle school. And I just started gravitating towards, you know, political current events. And I remember it was in middle school and there was a gubernatorial race. It's when uh, you know, Jeb Bush was running. And I remember asking somebody, I was like, who should, who should I be for? I was just so excited. I wanted to pick a team and just to root for somebody. And I remember somebody told me that, well, because you are number one black and second, because you are an immigrant, you have to root for the Democrat. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I was a kid. I was like, oh, I, I guess that's, that's what you do. But, you know, but it was a natural progression for me to become naturally who I was, a conservative individual. And during high school in, in particular, I remember it was AP U.S. history, Mr. Garvey's class. And we would always debate not only historical topics, but also current events. And I would always side on the conservative side of the aisle um, and to the point where Mr. Garvey was like, you know, Bernie the conservative, you know, just as <laughs> dismissively. And, you know, and I Bernie the Republican and I and I sat there and I was like, well, if that's what they believe, then, you know, so be it. <laughs> and, you know, and I never looked back and, you know, and I, and I stayed true to myself ever since. And whenever I talk to young people of color who all, often ask me, um, they're interested in politics and they want to navigate as to what, what should they be. And I tell them, you know, do some soul searching, find out what you believe and be genuine about it. And if you've come to fall on the side of the conservatives, do not let any kind of social pressure prevent you from thinking otherwise, because it's genuine. My friend Justin is genuine in his belief. And so everybody should be able to feel free to be genuine in theirs as well. Beautiful. Both of what you've said is so powerful. Thank you. So, so we've had the joy of being able to watch you on college campuses. You've done the, the full range, right? You were at Berkeley. You were digitally at BYU. Very different campuses, obviously. And you do this great presentation where... Um, Bernie, you're wearing a red tie and Justin's wearing a blue tie and you've got these coats on and you do look very GQ. And then you time, you, you know, you pick a, a controversial topic and then you time it and you go from one topic to the other and you just go for it. Like you've, you know what you think, you make these wonderful impassioned arguments on both sides that are pretty compelling. And, and I guess I want to well, I'm going to ask you uh, one question, which I think I know the answer to, which is, is there any point in time where one of you has said something that makes you go, oh, my gosh, you're right. I, I, I agree with you now. And if not, what is kind of, you know, how do you think of the process of, of the fact that you're talking about these things and your ideas are sort of butting up against each other? You know, what, what, what comes of that from your experience? Well, I'll answer first. I'll say, hell no. So <laughs> nothing that Bernie has ever said has changed my mind. I might, you know, acknowledge that he made a strong point, a good point that I never, I never thought of, but he has never changed my mind. But I like to always say that it is not our job to tell people how to think, but to make sure that they are thinking. And so I always leave our conversations thinking about what we discussed and what has been dialogued. And, you know, perhaps there is a 
you know, a weakness in my argument that I never really thought about that Bernie exploited. And now I'm motivated to go study to be better prepared for our next boxing political match. So I think there's always benefit in being sharpened by someone else. You know, I'm a student of the Bible. So when it talks about iron sharpening iron, you know, I think that's what happens when Bernie and I engage in conversation. And that's why I believe it's important to have discussions with those who are a little different than you, who may think different than you, because at the end of the day, even though if your mind is not changed by what they have to say, you will at least be open to a new perspective or to being sharpened by perspective that they have about what you said. Yeah, I'll echo what, what Justin said. I, he's never changed my mind either. But, you know, I, I get a different perspective each time because it's, it's very easy to be dismissive of different viewpoints that you just don't see the, the you might read something on social media from somebody who thinks differently about it. Uh, that, that seems silly. You know, what, where did they come up with that idea? And it's so easy to just throw it away. But when you have a real discussion, you know, you kind of see the reasoning behind why somebody would believe something that you, you initially thought was crazy. And you may still think it's crazy, but at least you could see where they got to that point and you could appreciate it. And, and that's what I, I've noticed, you know, in our conversations where I'm like, okay, all right, I, I see where he got to that point. And, and, and similarly to Justin, sometimes, you know, when I gather that, it equips me better if I am in a discussion with somebody who, who is liberal, progressive, that I can now know where they're coming from. And it can even help my argument better because I can anticipate where possibly they're, they're gathering this from. And so it's, it's very um, instructive. And I think it's very productive um, when we do this, even though we don't change each other's minds. I mean, I'm pretty principled. I know, I know what I believe. It's not to say if, if I see something to be true, I'm, I'm going to reject it just, just, just for the sake of it. But I will say it does help when I'm able to hear from somebody else a different perspective because it helps sometimes strengthen my position because it makes me go back and do that homework as well. Yeah. Well, I love that because it's like you, you know, if we're solving real, real, real problems, if we're trying to do that, then the whole idea that you can glean some ideas and some different ways of thinking about it. And, you know, make, there's a great John Stuart Mill quote that's something like that, that, you know, your ideas plus the others can make them complete in a way that otherwise they can't be. And then also the other thing I wanted to throw out is there's a journalist actually that we're going to have on one of these programs, Amanda Ripley, that talks about the idea of complicating the narrative. And it does strike me that one of our problems in public discourse right now is that our narrative isn't at all complicated. It's just like me right, you wrong. <laughs> I'm good, you're evil. And, and that by making it complex and dimensional as we have these conversations, that it, everything is pretty complicated and it, it helps us see humanity in each other. And then Jacob, you were going to say something. Yeah. I just wanted to add, you talk about not having your minds changed, but then I, I hear, but I was more open to a new perspective and, you know, it sharpened this and I saw how you got here. And it strikes me that when we say change your mind, what we, what we mean is like a conversion, right? A total conversion. But there's a lot of other mind changes that it seems to me are happening. Is that fair? Like, you know, I mean, I used to believe that liberals were trying to destroy America. I read a book about how they were out to kind of, and I believed that until I had these, these experiences. And no, it didn't fundamentally 
convert me away from being a religious conservative, but I certainly don't see liberals the same way, you know? Indeed. So even if our, our, our political views don't change, we are being changed in the process of this dialogue. So it's a process. Yeah. I was hoping for an amen from you. <laughs> and, and before we move on, I want to thank Bernie for helping me to connect the dots to your crazy. Thanks, bro. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so we've actually got another um, question that we wanted to ask you, but I want to go ahead and bump it to a little later in the program. We can ask everybody this question because I want to make sure that we um, bring on our next wonderful pair of humans, Marion Edmonds Allen and Derek Monson. And I'm going to go ahead and hand it to you, Marion, and you can introduce Derek. Thank you, Liz. And I'm so glad to be part of the conversation tonight. Derek Monson is a dear friend of mine, even though most weeks someone will say to me, do you actually know who he is? And I'll say, Actually, yes, I do. <laughs> Derek is the vice president of policy at the Sutherland Institute, which is a conservative think tank that's very influential in Utah and beyond. Derek is, I think of him as like a, a conservative Rachel Maddow in a way, because <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing, Derek, because he's super, super smart and thoughtful. And being a policy guy with degrees and having written and been, I turn on the radio, there's Derek. You know, Derek's here, there, and everywhere with a really thoughtful opinion that I usually don't like at all. And he's my friend. <laughs> so Derek, I, I cherish our friendship. I think we've been friends now for about eight years. Right. I'll tell you, I'm going to add it to my bio from now on. I'm a conservative Rachel Maddow. I like that one. It's good. So Marion is uh, an executive director, the executive director at an organization called Parity in New York City, and they work at the intersection of faith and LGBTQ concerns. She also directs a project called Blessed by Difference, which works to bridge the divides of, of faith and LGBTQ. More, more importantly, in, in my opinion, uh, she's just a great friend and a good person, a good human being who works at, at trying to improve problems that cause unnecessary suffering and people's lives. Um, she's married to her wonderful wife, Tori, who I've had the privilege of meeting on several occasions and has four children. And she's just a privilege to know. Thank you both. I just giggled when Marion spoke of her affection for you, Derek. And then even while holding that affection, she said, I don't like it, those ideas. <laughs> the bringing those two together to me is part of the magic of this you know, and part of what makes it challenging. So a good place to start is you have, you have described your relationship with Derek and other people in this work, Marion, as a friendship blessed by differences, which is definitely not how many Americans would see it, right? It's like, oh, gotta stay away from that uncle for sure. Tell, so say a little bit more about how you first two met and, and what it's led to in your work together. Sure. So I stalked Derek. I knew who he was. I, I was a I was an activist. Well, I'm still an activist. I, back then, I was an activist in Utah working to help prevent LGBT youth homelessness and suicide. And I was having all kinds of really loud events and and not really getting anywhere. And I realized that there were some people in the, in the state that held power and had influence on the legislature. And so I wanted to get into those circles. And I realized that Derek was someone who, who 
was in those circles and was saying things that I really didn't agree with, but I, I wanted to be in conversation with him. So I stalked him and I found a mutual friend that would introduce us. And Derek, being the gracious soul that he was, wasn't frightened by me. I'm sure he'd seen me on the news and was like, oh, no. But he agreed to meet with me and somehow we just, we hit it off and we started talking and we haven't stopped talking ever since. I think that's right. Um, I just remember in the initial conversations, Marion being someone who, who was willing to be candid, but who was also willing to listen at the same time. And, and so you could share disagreements and share honest perspectives and then not, you know, walk away feeling like, oh, that person hates me or, oh, I, I don't like them. You know, actually, it led to greater connection because there were differences there that we were both curious about, about trying to understand and trying to wade through and see if there's actual commonality. And then finding that commonality, which made the friendship that much stronger, just like any relationship that goes through, you know, rocky times and then actually finds themselves back together again in some fashion, uh, rhetorically or otherwise. It ends up being stronger and better, and and your life is made that much richer for it. And I think that's the thing that struck me most about my interactions with Marion is, uh, and I would encourage everybody to to seek out these interactions with people who disagree. Is you know, your life is poorer if you don't have those things. And you know, every, people are still good. They don't have to. You know, people are good who don't have these kinds of friendships. But you're just missing out on something, and uh, and it's hard to explain. Not that we can't try to explain it. But it's something that's, I think, much better understood, experienced than, than understood intellectually, as much as we want to we tell you about it. Thank you. So, you know, so much of our politics is just so driven by identity and that the conversation we're having, it's almost like we take turns dehumanizing and delegitimizing each other. And I wouldn't say that there's no issue that it's really more true on than really the issue that you have, you guys have grappled with, which is what is normally in the public square seems like this zero sum game of arguing either LGBTQ rights or religious liberty. And, you know, somebody's going down, it's one or the other, but you guys see that really differently after having been through the process that, that you've been through and, um, which includes some legislative achievements as well. Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll pick that up first. You know, I think one thing we discovered on that first meeting and subsequent meetings kind of fleshed out at a deeper level is we shared a, a desire to do things better. You know, that despite whatever disagreements we have, there's got to be space for people in the LGBTQ community and traditional faith communities, conservative faith communities, to to exist peacefully, right? And And not have to have a constant culture war. And so we kind of sought those things out in conversation, first of all. And then that came up later in legislative conversations that, you know, in Utah, Marion and I work with, with lots of other organizations and people passed a piece of legislation that protected rights and, and work and housing for LGBTQ individuals, as well as created new protections for religious expression and religious freedom and practice in those same spaces. And, uh, and what it showed is that that instinct, at least what it showed me, was that that instinct we had was right. There are better ways of doing things. And, and, and not only that, but that was back in, I guess that's what, four, four, five, six years ago now that that law passed and the world has not fallen apart. You know, <laughs> that life is pretty much the same as it was before, uh, 
except people have better protections for their lives. And so, you know, you can find these, these compromise solutions and what's more, you can put them in place and not see society crumble before you because that's based a lot more, I think, on unsubstantiated fears than on, on concerns that uh, end up panning out in reality. Yeah, I think you're right, Liz. So many people figure it's a, it's a win or lose. Either I win or I'm going to lose. But my work with Derek and other work that I've done is how can we all benefit from that? From whatever we're working on, how can I, my, my folks move forward? How can your folks move forward? And it's usually easier than one might think. It's for religious freedom and LGBT rights, I'm an LGBT pastor, so that's natural for me. But talking with everyone, we can see that, okay, there's common ground here. Everyone wants to be respected. Everyone wants their families to be safe. Everyone wants kids to be safe. We can agree on so much. And so let's work from where we agree. And then let's figure out something that that works for a lot more people than less. Beautiful. And ideally makes everybody feel less under siege as well, because the because the winning at all costs and the zero sum game, it it always comes back at you. I'm I'm thinking about the friends I have who would listen to this and go, oh, what? Kind of be a little skeptical. Have you had people pushing back on you in this work? And you know, because it can look a little bit too hard to believe sometimes. I'd like people to understand the kind of personal work you've had to do to be able to do this. And, and even explaining to people who maybe think like you about the value. And I imagine both of you have had that experience. I know I certainly have. And it's it's part of my life every day. I, I work in very progressive, left-leaning areas of the world. And a lot of folks don't like the fact that I'm friends with Derek or that Derek and I will write op-eds together. They see me as, well, can I trust you then? If you're talking with that with those people, it's always those people. Can I really trust you now? So I do get that pushback. And my response is, it makes my positions in the world that much clearer to me and much easier for me to articulate. Mm. And my personal agenda of a loving world is advanced by my knowing and working with Derek. So it's just plain good for the world. And it's not just those people anymore, is it? It's Derek, right? Right, right. I'm like, please meet Derek. He's not that scary. COVID beard aside. <laughs> no, I th- that's right. You know, I, frankly, you lose some friends when you, when you make certain friendships, you know, and, and there's been some criticisms, I think, that have come my way from, from individuals that we, my organization or me personally worked with in the past and maybe people who raise an eyebrow saying, I don't know, I can trust you anymore. You seem like you're off the reservation a little bit. I don't know what your, what your beliefs are anymore. And which is kind of an odd thing because it's basically like what I believe in being a decent human being. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, like, I'm not sure why that should uh, lead me to be something else in your eyes, but really it's an opportunity in my mind to, to share with uh, those individuals who, who, who have questions and, and don't understand why I would want to interact with Marion, want to be writing op-eds with Marion, those kinds of things to say, you know, there's real things that, that I'm gaining in my life from this relationship. And I think you would gain them too mm-hmm. if, you, if you interact with people who disagree with you on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just, I guess it provides actually a window of opportunity because I just imagine that 
for, for most conservative people, right of center people, if someone, say, on the left came to them and gave them a message like that, they would be much less willing to receive it than they heard it from a fellow conservative, someone they've seen be conservative, talk conservative, take conservative positions. And the same thing on the other side, right, uh, for, for moderates or, or liberals, progressives. And so, really, it's an opportunity, I think, to, to help broaden their experience the way that I feel like mine's been broadened and, and that because I want them to have the similar great experience that I'm having. And, you know, I think that's just what we ought to try to do for people. So I love the way you guys talk about, I mean, you, you, you check things against each other. You know, you, you say, Hey, I was thinking this, what do you think? Is that, is that crazy? And it reminded me, I was trying to find a quote before we started and I finally found it. It's by a gentleman named Pete Wainer, who our Tallahassee audience knows has he's visited us for a program. And he talked about his advice to set yourself in a network you value and allow a search for truth to flow from there. And, and it kind of reminded me of you guys talking about that. And I want to go ahead and open it up. Maybe Bernie, Bernie and Justin, you have something to say too. Do you, do you sometimes convince each other to maybe go a different way uh, in, a, in a way that's useful. And, and what do you think about that quote about setting yourself in a network that includes people who disagree with you? Yeah, it sounds like it's encouraging us to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, we like to live and move in our bubbles with people who think like us, who look like us, who agree with us. And so whenever we encounter people with ideological or political differences, our first response is to delete them on Facebook or Twitter or to stop talking to them. And, you know, we like to call it cancel culture. But, you know, are you willing to sit in that uncomfortable and awkward space and listen before you react? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I enjoy being in different rooms with people who think differently than me in different communities as well. So where I live, my particular city, it's a very conservative part of the county, but not too far from us, you know, in St. Petersburg is becoming this liberal bastion. And so and you know, I, I frequent St. Petersburg and and try to be among the people to see, you know, where what are what are the liberals up to these days? Where, where you know what's what's trending in their world? I mean, what's what's up over there? Are you doing research, Bernie? Are you doing research? <laughs> A little awful research. No, but it's it's you know it's need to be a contrarian. I um you know I experienced it you know going to college and law school you know being. A, a lot of times the lone conservative, not only the lone conservative, but an outspoken one, one that admitted he was conservative. And so in being in those environments, you know, I made friends along the way who didn't think, you know, like me. But but me being in the room, I added some things that they've never considered before. And to this point where people would be like, yeah, I remember when you were in evidence class and you brought the brought up this point, you know, and and, and so when you're in different rooms with people, you might hear something different that never would have crossed your radar. But I, you know, I, I, I do well in it. It's probably maybe not for everyone, but I think there is some value there to, to not just be with, with your group. And, and make no mistake, I mean, a lot of my core friends are, are similar to me and conservative and so forth, but I, I don't limit myself either. Yeah, I think I would add to that that, you know, we're all works in progress, uh, whether that's, you know, at a, at a basic human level or, or with our political beliefs. And I suppose if you think otherwise, it might be one of those you know, you may be an ideologue if or you know, <laughs> kind of a Foxworthy kind of anyway. And so having those experiences of people who have different views ends up rubbing those rough edges off, you know? So how that's looked for me personally, Marion and I have written some like, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe more op-eds together on various things that have hot topics come up in the news, uh, you know, 
Supreme Court decisions or or things in Utah. And I can't count how many times I've sent a draft of something over and she massages some of that rough edge off in a way that uh, either I didn't see or that I created because uh, I'm a passionate person about what I believe. And so I might say things that I don't see how it's going to come across and what it might mean to someone else. And I get the benefit of uh, that perspective from her. And not only has it has it looked like that, but now it's gotten to the point where I've internalized some of that feedback, you know, and, and kind of, uh, I'm certainly not perfect at it, but I can catch some things and then think, you know what, how would, how would Marion see this or how would so-and-so see this? It's, it's kind of branched out from, from me and Marion to others that, that I interact with. And that really, uh, again, it benefits me. And, and I think it benefits anything I do in the world better. Uh, it makes it better, makes it more refined, makes it more valuable to others and more resonant to other people. And that's all to the good. I wanted to add that, that Liz, you told me once, Liz, there's a creepy comfort that comes from just being on your side, uh, on your team's side, on your team, and seeing the other side as destroying all that's good. You know, there's sort of a, a reinforcement that comes. But to go against that brings discomfort. Like, it would have been a lot more comfortable if you'd made a different choice, Bernie, and, and, you know, gone with the team you were supposed to. But I'm imagining you as this young student sitting in your class and just feeling this discomfort, but still wanting to follow what felt right. And I, going all the way back to Justin, I want to say amen after what you described as the practice of this. Like, I, I want to suggest this is more than a relationship. It's more than an event. It's a practice that we're inviting people into. So right after this class is over, right after this event is over, I'm teaching a meditation class. And, you know, meditation, I don't recruit people for the class saying, come have fun meditating. It's like it's uncomfortable to sit with your stuff and to actually look at the contradictions inside. And when I have done these Village Square events and spent time with Liz, I notice a similar thing happening between me and her, where it's like this, this holding, just as you said, Justin, of these contradictions, but as you hold them, they move and they change. You may not be converted, but they, there's a flow that happens. So thanks for saying for summarizing it so well, Justin, a little amen. So I want to um, mention, and actually I haven't opened the questions yet, but I'm doing that now. And I did, I did want to get back to um, something that I sort of bumped earlier, that it's something that I, I love the way that Bernie and Justin talk about, let me read it. It's that, that you think that the ability to be comfortable with unresolved tension is a lost art in America. Say something about that yeah it's 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 not easy to to engage with people who are on the different on the other side but like we mentioned before just you know practice sitting in that awkwardness practice being uncomfortable and giving yourself an opportunity to be in those environments and you'll be amazed at how it not that it changes you but how it develops you because even in that discomfort you can be strengthened in ways unimaginable. So, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what I would say about that. And when it comes to cancel culture, I'm also curious whether everyone on this panel believes if there's a difference between cancel culture and consequence. 
Hmm. I would definitely say that there is, you know, I mean, I think you see that in politics all the time, you know, like you can do and say whatever you want to say, but you can't control how that's going to come across to people who are, who are an influence people you're trying to persuade. Does it mean you ought to be canceled? I don't know, but it certainly means that you might lose some influence, right? It certainly means that you might lose some ability to, to persuade people and you might gain a reputation if it happens particularly over and over again. And that, that, that is just natural consequence of, of our actions. You know, you control what you do. You can't control the consequence of, of what you do all the time. So a question from the audience. Um, how do you deal, deal with your friend when you can't agree on facts? Well, that's so I, I've run into this before and I was debating a friend um, uh, texting back and forth and and he just kept saying, well, these are just basic facts. And I was like, well, you know, one person's facts is another person's, you know, just uh, opinion, you know. And, and so there there aren't sometimes there aren't just established facts. Sometimes it's just your political perspective and your opinion. You know, it's especially when you're talking about policy matters and things like that is just your persuasion and how you look at it. And so sometimes I think, and I'm seeing it more and more that people dismiss what are opinions and, and, and are triggered by opinions thinking that they're challenging, you know, facts that everybody has agreed on, you know, and, and if that was so, there would be no debate. There would be no reason why I was going back and forth. And so, and so I think if people should dial it back in a sense where not everything you believe, you know, is, this, is, is adopted as fact. And just because that other person doesn't adopt it as fact doesn't make them any less than. It just means that's your viewpoint and they have a different one and you can duke it out, but there's no reason to, you know, jump on the other person because they think differently than you because of something you hold dearly and you think is a fact. So I think, you know, understanding the difference between facts and opinions and giving more leeway to opinions I think will 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 be very beneficial, and I think a lot of a lot of stuff we're seeing with the cancel culture is that people hear an opinion that is so radically different than theirs that they're shook by it, they're so jarred by it that they immediately want to shut it out because they ascribe all sorts of nefarious uh, motivations for you having those views. And quite honestly, if I can just interject there, you know, if we pick a topic and Bernie and I draft up some facts, we will not have the same facts. That's just the way it is. I will have this number. He will have this number. And so, you know, more important than the numbers, more important than our opinion uh, should be, you know, acknowledging him as a human and being willing, being willing to listen and interact with him and engage with him. So that should be the goal. It's not to be right and for him to be wrong. It's not for me to to live and for him to die. Let me hear what he has to say. And let's see how we can work together, like Marion mentioned earlier, for the greater good. You know, I want to throw something in about that, generally about facts, in that I think that one of the things that we're doing is we're, the, the fact that we're not hanging out with each other means that we don't test a hypothesis against someone who sees sort of a very different side of a very big elephant. And so in general, I think that we get worse and worse on facts the more that we spend less time with people who will test us and who will, you know, will stretch us a little bit. So it's weird. I kind of think it's a circular problem. We don't spend as much time with each other and engage with each other. So therefore we're all sort of, you know, generate our own team's facts and 
then we are get so irritated that we don't spend time with each other and it's just a vicious cycle. And, and I guess I also wanted to offer up an observation and maybe a question that I have for our conservative friends is I have noticed in my years at the Village Square, I think that liberals accidentally make the public square pretty rough on conservatives. And, and I, I think that that's one of the worst things that's happening to us. And I think if we could find a way to shift that, a lot of this would get better. And I think a lot of, a lot of our understanding of sort of mutual facts would get better too. Do you guys have that experience? Is, is big public conversations, the public square as we know it, is it hospitable to you? Is it hard to be there? Uh, I'll kick it off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially in certain circles, especially among the, you know, academia as, you know, in the professional ranks, you know, you reach a certain level where it becomes taboo to express conservative viewpoints. And it's seen as you're not cultured or you're, you're, you're not as educated. And so a lot of people are silent. I can't tell you the amount of people who come to me in a professional setting, colleagues, who would whisper and say, hey, I, I agree with you, Bernie. You know, I, I also voted for so-and-so, uh, but, you know, I, I really can't say it. Whereas our progressive friends can shout from the rooftop with no consequences and no kind of social shunning for, for, for holding their views. And where we operate in secret and have to whisper in certain set in a lot of settings. And so, so I've seen it a lot and you, you've seen it transpire and then the social media sphere of people being canceled and, and accounts being deleted and so forth. But, but I have experienced that. I mean, from the time I left Naples, Florida, which was a very conservative area and going to college in the DC area, which was quite a culture shock to have my views <laughs> and Tacoma Park, Maryland, and people, I was taking all sorts of incoming and, and I was used to it. And so I'm able to, I think it helped me in that sense, you know, being immersed in that kind of environment to go forward. But if you're, I mean, if you grew up in a conservative, traditional conservative setting and it's your upbringing and, and you're often thought to be, you know, think to be silent. I agree with Bernie. And I would add, I know there are people in Utah as a very conservative environment who aren't sure they can always say, you know, they're share their progressive views openly. And I, I've noticed that surveys show folks on both the left and the right, the majorities are scared to say what they really think. So there, there is this weird conservative thing happening where conservative views are often associated with anti-science and hateful and, you know, we don't care about poor people and the the conversation gets framed. So even before we say anything, it can be, there can be a deep suspicion. And lots of people are scared to share because there's that, that kind of gang up. My wife actually posted something about motherhood a year and a half ago and people ganged up on her online that she had never met. And in the weeks afterwards, she got sick. She actually got one of the worst flus and almost almost to like a, a dangerous level. It lasted for weeks. And she thinks that the trauma <laughs> of that online experience led to her getting sick. And so I, I know a lot of people are just like, I'm done with social media. I'm done talking to the other side. It's, you know, as a way to protect themselves on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's true, particularly on social media, you know, or but particularly certain forums, but social media where the anonymity of it can allow you to, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe just show some of that rough side of yourself without any consequence, really. I think I, I, think I find that much less so when you do have inner interactions face-to-face -face with people. 
like, you know, I mean, even in some of these settings where there is maybe more of a, a typical hostility towards, towards conservative viewpoints, like on campus and elsewhere, you look someone in the eye and you say something, I think people naturally don't want to look that person back in the eye and just bash them, right? I mean, there are some people that, that that's just how they respond to certain scenarios. And I'm, I'm sure I have some of those moments myself, right? I mean, being a passionate person, you have strong thoughts. But uh, it, it is much less likely, and it creates actually opportunities there to then maybe massage different and gain different nuances on understanding the other side of the viewpoint. Uh, I mean, it's a digital world we live in, so you know we're not going to get out of that. But but in as much as we can create those face to face interactions, it can uh, make things less hostile. I think just by the nature of that interaction. Thank you for the question, Liz. You were going to say something, Justin. You want to still throw in? I was just going to uh, correct Bernie. I say correct. So he <laughs> Twitter being canceled. That was a consequence. What? of a violation of Twitter platform rules. So I mentioned before, cancel culture versus consequence. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, good distinction. Um, if I could add a question, Liz, and your comment is a perfect segue. All this hesitance and kind of worry about people getting mad. It's partly why I love where you two started and you're, you described your interactions as this grappling together, right? You're not just like, um, now I understand how you think. You know, you're not trembling in your boots when you talk with each other. I, as I'm imagining these phone calls or conversations you have, it's really like grappling over what is true, right? And compared to this constant hesitance and like worry and fear that wears all of us down, and there's something so refreshing about that. So... I would love to hear if there have been any prickly points in your relationships together. You know, it can look like unreal. It's sort of like people who talk about marriage, like it's just the most wonderful thing forever. We never fight. (laughs) Describe a little bit how you work through those moments and just transcend them because it helps. I think it helps make it real, both the beauty of what you're saying and some of the realities of working through frustrations you have. So have you ever made each other mad? (laughs) <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'll, I'll confess something. So sometimes you hear certain things that will, will, that will jar you to the core. You know, I, like, I love, I love this country. I think this is the greatest country in the history of the world. And I remember we were doing a back and forth. I think Justin said, you know, this is a racist, you know, country. This is just race, you know, basically there are a lot of racial institutions and things like that. And it was like, and I, and it, 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 it it took me aback because I, I was like, no, I don't believe this is a racist country. I think this is a, a, a great country. So it really, certain things will take shock you to the core. But what redeems that is that, you know, I know Justin. So it helps having the relationship and, and the friendship there mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. as the foundation. Because when somebody might say something that is, that, that will offend you, you know, it, you go back to that relationship. You're like, well, you know, this is my friend. He's not even if he holds that view, he's not meaning to hurt me by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know him to be a decent person. And so, and it, and it, and it helps to acknowledge people's experiences and never, and I think that what has helped me too is not question people's personal experiences because, and, and I've come to this realization late, later on in life, because I realized there were times I was not given that benefit of the doubt. Because I remember I would in college say, 
and people would be like, well, you know, you know, as a young black male, you know, you've been profiled and people have followed you in stores. And I'd be like, no, I've never had any such experience. I've never been stopped because I was black. All my experiences with, with police officers have been very positive. And people didn't believe me and they were they dismissed it, they laughed at me. And so on, on the reverse side, somebody like my friend Justin had totally different experiences. And it, it helps to just take people at their word, you know, to bring down the temperature, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 because I, I, I knew what it was like on the other end to not be afforded that. And I think that helps a lot too when you hear something very, very offensive. Yeah, and I'll respond quickly, but sometimes when I hear Bernie say some things, I do get frustrated. But I think I've never gotten angry, but sometimes I wonder, I'm like, does he have all the screws on in his head in the right place? Like, come on, dude. How can you not see it how I see it? But I value our friendship and I respect him, even though sometimes I don't I don't subscribe to his perspectives. I don't agree with them. They make me mad sometimes, but I'm not mad at him. It's more so what I heard that I react negatively to. Like, it doesn't sit with me and it. It, it brings out a reaction that I, that I can either control or either say something in response that might not be productive or might attack him as a person. And so just engaging with Bernie has given me the, I like to call it the emotional or just the strength to stand in those awkward moments and to listen and to respond intelligibly. Thank you. Bernie Derek. Well, Oh, Marion never gets mad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. My kids would say different. With Derek, sometimes, Derek, you, you have said things that kind of hurt my feelings and, you know, confessional moment here that, that we're having. But I'll also say that I know that your intent has never been to hurt me. And it it would be out of, okay, well, maybe Derek doesn't know a word to use your LGBT stuff can be hard to talk about. I mean, that's just, it's just the reality of it. And so realizing that, okay, let's talk about this a little bit more. And if it's an issue that we've really disagreed about, that's been important to me, what I try to do it to diffuse that is to lean into stories and say, can you tell me more about your perspective? Can you tell me a story about why you think that way? And then that helps me to kind of bring down my own internal temperatures so that I can be fully in the conversation without feeling that I'm being reactive. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is just, I think it's just important to, in those moments, to try to, try to step outside yourself. And, you know, it's, it's really hard because we're in a world that, that says, no, only look at stuff through your own eyes, right? Uh, and there's various ways that it sends that message. And, but the reality is if you want to connect with other people, you can't do that all the time. And, and so this is an area where that's really helpful. I mean, this is true in, in any relationship, you know, in a marriage and with a child, like you step outside yourself, try to see what they're seeing. And, and all of a sudden you can start to understand maybe why they might be, might be saying what they're saying. And even though it still might hurt you, or you might be offended by it or upset by it, you understand. And that's a basis then to, to, to get over that hump of, of anger or, or of upsetness or whatever to, to continue the relationship. And again, you end up being benefited for it. Like the immediate question would be like, well, why would you want to do that? Because it's so rewarding to do that with someone, uh, particularly someone who has different experience and viewpoint than yours that then just, you know, broadens your life in, in any number of ways. 
Thank you for your answers. Hurts me, but it wasn't his intent. I was frustrated, but I know him. I just want to under, underscore how beautiful it is. Like, we know how that usually ends. That hurt me. I'm frustrated. We know what it usually leads to. But because of the connections you have, like a whole different thing happens, right? And I could sense the pain in even what you shared, Marion, but then you you bring it together in, in a completely different thing. I find that really beautiful. Liz? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer a quick audience question myself about how do we bring uh, conversations like this to college campuses digitally that it seems really hard to do. And the answer is yes, it's really hard to do, although it saves in airfare, which is nice. But, you know, but actually the reason I wanted to answer that is because one of the things we really believe is there really is no shortcut for human to human, eyes to eyes, breaking bread together. And, and I think that's one of the challenges we have in this environment is that, like you say, Derek, digital is here to stay. But if the, if the way to solve the way that we feel about each other is a human to human proposition, it's pretty hard to know how that, you know, I mean, we think that means we need to spend time hanging out and be really intentional about it. But I'm curious if any of the rest of you have thoughts about that. I mean, is a virtual group hug possible? I mean, what can we do to bridge this divide? Um, I'm sure there's research out there about the power of physical touch and looking at someone's eyes in person versus through my computer or phone camera. But uh, it's difficult in this season. But I think this platform and this is an, ex this is an example. This is this is an example of how we can still connect with each other despite our differences, even though we can't be together in person. So another another question, actually, this is for Bernie. Um, how have your fellow conservatives responded to your Haitian descent? And I would assume they mean your 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 status as having been an immigrant at a certain point in time. No, I've had no issues. I, I cannot think of one issue of somebody uh, treating me unfairly in my conservative circles because of my uh, Haitian descent. And I think one of the things too that happens with conservatives and, and how they're looked at is, you know, in, uh, conservatives are often hardline on illegal immigration. And I think when one of the things, you know, when you can make that distinction, and it's one of the reasons, one of those issues that sometimes conservatives like to be silent because if you don't have the, uh, give it the nuance it deserves between legal immigration and illegal immigration, you could easily be, you know, labeled as a xenophobe, as a racist, just because you, you want strong borders. I want strong borders. And yeah, I, I want us to be very tough on the borders and, and make sure that that we're, we're, we're secured in that aspect. And so I think, you know, the things about what I found with conservatives is, and, I, and I'll admit, I'm a minority in a lot of conservative circles. I'm often the one of the few people who looks like me, <laughs> you know, uh, admittedly. But I think one of the things I found within conservative groups is when you think the same, when they find out, you know, you share similar values, it's amazing how barriers go down. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's such a, a brotherhood. And, you know, even though I like, like I said, to, to hang out with people who think differently than me, but I do find comfort with my conservative uh, brethren because we share those same values and, and so forth. And, and as soon as people realize that, I mean, you're treated with, with the utmost respect. And so I've never had any issues uh, because of, of my Haitian American status within my Republican conservative circles. 
Jacob, I see that you were typing an answer to a question I was actually going to ask you. I can't find it now. Do you, do you want to? I mean, yeah. What is it that made you think that liberals wanted to destroy the country? There are questions about which both sides feel legitimate threat, right? Life and death threat around climate or suicide or many of these issues. And we, there are ways to have conversations like this. But as we all know, there's another rhetoric that can get laid down on top of it where the people that don't think like us are lying to us and they, are, they don't care. They're not honest. They're not good. They don't even care about America. That's the kind of thing that I, I read and heard as a teenager. There's a book by the LaHaye's about the war that liberals were waging on America. And so much of what they raised is actually true. But then you wrap it in a narrative that it's a war. And it's not a war between good and evil, which I believe. But it's a war between those people and our people, right? I no longer believe that that. What I see is really, really good folks who are conservative and really, really good folks on the other side. And then on both sides, there's kind of an ugliness that has taken hold too. And I, I do not identify with those conservatives or those liberals. But when I hang out with Liz, I'm like, this, these are my people too, you know? I have a lesbian activist friend who told me, Jacob, it's like there's another tribe we're forming here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> we're finding each other and saying, so, you know, there's dishonest people on both sides and there's people that are, uh, that are causing problems on both sides. So that's what I was, grew up and I, I couldn't stomach it after I had these conversations. I'm noticing in some of the comments, some of the questions about how do we do this with others in the face of this intense polarization? Like, how would you break it down for somebody who would like to try more of this, would like to reach out? Another, uh, Kelly says, how do we break the ice with family members, friends who are in opposite bubbles or afraid, afraid to engage? I'd love to hear what kind of advice, encouragement you'd all have about real life, doing, doing this in your own life? Well, one thing that I'll, I'll kick off and share, this has been my experience with Marion, was listen first. And, and maybe not just listen first, but just have a conversation where that's the only thing you want to accomplish. You know, particularly if it's a family member or, or a close friend or something. Just, you know, go to whatever scenario makes the most sense socially for you. You know, whether that's over a meal or or over Zoom or whatever, phone call, and, and just ask them sincerely, uh, not as a not as like a, a prop to get you somewhere, but just ask sincerely, what what do you think about this? Or if you know what they think about something, I, I want to understand better what that belief's about, where you're coming from and what, and and I think, you know, oftentimes we get so um, our guard up if we hear someone disagrees with us, and it's, uh, you can often think that they're constantly trying to outwit you, right? Or trying to, listening with the point of, of dismembering your beliefs or who you are as, as a person. And when you get that person who's genuinely listening and responding in ways that, that is, is showing greater curiosity as opposed to a debate, it's just a breath of fresh air. And, and it disarms all of the, the, the defense mechanisms because now you've, you've established this trust that you're not here to attack me. You're here to understand me. And, and what will likely happen is they'll reciprocate because uh, I think it's just a natural human response when we do that kind of thing. 
eventually at some point they'll start to ask you about your beliefs. And now all of a sudden you have that relationship rolling. Boy, I agree. I think one of the most incredible things about human beings is how reciprocal we are. We'll, you know, do such kindnesses to someone who has shown us the smallest kindness sometimes. And that sort of starts this, the cycle going from vicious to virtuous. And I also wonder too about just the, you know, we can't, I mean, the, I think the fears are real. The, the threats we feel feel very real, even if they're exaggerated or something's not factually correct about them. And I think that's a place to start too. I mean, just the, the idea that, that, you know, I can be worried and afraid of one thing and someone who's more conservative can be worried and afraid about another and that those aren't um, mutually opposing positions that we can embrace both. You know, um, somebody, we had done a project uh, with John Haidt and we talked about the fact that, you know, really conservatives with economic, with spending and economics and, and liberals with climate change, we're both really concerned about the next generation in different ways. Can't we hold both of those together and have conversations around, I mean, to me, that feels like it would reduce the sort of the sense of threat we feel from each other. I agree, Liz. And I would push back only on one point that in, in, in many cases, we can't embrace the ideas, both the ideas, but there's a way we can embrace common feelings. We're both scared, you know? I remember um, uh, initially with climate change, I felt like I couldn't say anything because, of course, if you say anything, you're one of those climate deniers, you know, like a Holocaust denier. And so it silences anyone with dissent. But I met Joan Blades and I, I started to ask questions. And the more I heard from her, the more I felt sad that she was so scared, right? She felt really scared of what was happening to the planet. I still didn't agree with her narrative of sort of the end times of what, what the big threats were. And actually, I, can, I, can I insert real quick here? Joan Blades is the co-founder of Move On. She and her husband founded Move On. So Jacob is very dear and close friends uh, with Joan. Yeah, and so the experience was I started to get really sad because of how sad Joan was. I got worried because of how worried she was, but I didn't still, I didn't see it exactly like she did, but I felt close to her. And I started to care about climate change because I knew how worried she was. And, you know, like if she's worried about it and, and I care about her, then I should be worried about it. And so I, I kind of softened and I wasn't, I got more curious. So real changes can happen if we just connect on that emotional level, right? Even if we think each other's ideas are batty or like, you know, Looney Tunes, like Justin was <laughs> saying, you're crazy. You're not as crazy as I thought, but you're still wrong. Those differences might remain, but if the heart shifts, it changes a lot. So, I also, by the way, think that Jacob's right about a bunch of things. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I've come to believe that, and I think that they can simultaneously be true with some of the things that I feel like I'm right about. It hasn't changed my politics exactly, except for I just really see what he's talking about. And, and so I get it. Did you all hear that, everybody? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll deny it later, Jacob S. <laughs> it's recorded. It's recorded. <laughs> so I love this question for you guys. What's your favorite thing you've learned from your friend, partner, colleague? I'll answer that one. My favorite thing about Derek was years ago when it was 
gay people were kind of closeted in Utah a lot of the times. I was grocery shopping with my family and in walking in the parking lot. Derek was walking along. He, I didn't recognize him. He had this BYU cap on and all this stuff. And all of a sudden I heard Marion, Marion. And it was Derek. And he was so excited to see me. And he wanted me to meet his family. And he wondered if he could meet mine. And my family were, were off shopping. That touched me so deeply. And what I learned about Derek was that he treasures me, regardless of how society might see LGBT folks, Derek treasures me and is proud of our friendship. And that will touch me for the rest of my life. Marianne. Yeah, I'm crying now. Jacob <laughs> <laughs> said no crying, Liz. <laughs> I, I think for me, one thing I've learned from Marianne, there's many things, but one thing is the power of just... I don't know the right words to describe it, but the best I can think of right now is is optimism and just a, a kind natured optimism about things. So the way the way to say it, like I think Jacob said in one in one side, I can't remember if it was on this 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 call earlier, but but Marion's never been angry, right? Like that's that's pretty much Marion, just this positive positivity and optimism about life and. And what that does to people is it opens doors, opens hearts, it opens minds. If you're not a cantankerous person, people tend to respond better to you is another way of saying it. And I, I'm a person who uh, can can get frustrated with things and, and life at, at times and can be self-defeating and certainly makes me less happy. And, uh, and I don't like to be that way. So um, that source of happiness uh, being about optimism and positivity is something I've learned. Yeah, one thing that I have uh, learned about Bernie and I appreciate about Bernie is that he really cares about his community. So he mentors, he shares, um, not just in the political sphere, but when he gets invited to speak at, let's say, a church somewhere, he's always willing to to lend his expertise and to share to help others in life. And I always appreciate that because I've seen people, you know, they they get into the political sphere and they get all big time and they, they don't have time for others and people who they used to know, people who used to be in their community, but he's always willing to reach back and to help others and to be a mentor and a source of light to them. So I appreciate that about, about Bernie. Thank you, sir. That's very kind. You know, one of the things I learned from Justin, it was actually a policy point. I remember I brought this up and, and, and he made me realize that not everybody who's on the woke left you know, social justice warrior left dismisses, you know, violence that happened within communities of color. I remember bringing it up and saying, well, it seems like you all only care about when the victim is black and the perpetrator is white. And what about the crime happening uh, within, you know, communities of color? And and he, he brought it up to me and I didn't know this. And Justice said he did work in Oakland and they would walk the blocks and talk about violence and, and, and really communities of color. And, and it's one of the things that, you know, gets overlooked at times. It's not publicized. It's not publicized, right. Mm -hmm. And, but that made me realize, it, it gave me a different eye on some of my other friends, even here in, in my community, who are doing that work. It's not publicized, but I noticed it now. I noticed it more, like on Facebook, when they said, hey, we're going to do this thing. And I'm like, oh, what? You know, they are addressing that as well. Um, and it, it's it's not as publicized, but there is work happening in that space when I didn't think it was. I thought it was completely being ignored and that it was being, um, you know, overlooked, you know, for the more high profile stuff. So 
and I appreciate his work on that. And I notice when other people are doing it as well. And, and, and so that was, that was a great learning moment for me. So I want to um, give everybody a chance to just have, just wrap up a little bit, but Jacob actually has a very hard break here. He has to go teach meditation and I want him to be able to be all Zen about that. So I'll, I'll ask Jacob if you want to, if you want to share any parting thoughts before you meditate. I just come away from this feeling optimistic and hopeful. I'm not hopeful in the near term, but long term, this is what wins. This stuff, you know, this is the, the real stuff. And all the other fantasies that are, are catching hold of Americans, it makes me really hopeful. And I find such goodness in your faces. I've been watching your faces as you say nice things about each other, <laughs> you know. So anyway, thank you for letting me be a part of this. Have a good class. And I would add to what you said that I think it has to win. I think we have to make it win. And I, I think we have some capability to do that. And I think we have to decide it. So I'll let you go, Jacob, if you need to. And uh, anyone else, closing thoughts, observations? Yeah, I think um, I love the model of the marketplace of ideas. And one of the things I love about this country is that people can bring forth their ideas and duke it out and then, you know, let the people decide. You know, and, and so it's not when I have discussions with Justin, it's not to try to convince him. I know I know he's principled and he believes what he believes. It's a discussion to see where he's coming from and so forth. So a lot of times your discussions are not really to convince the other person. But if you have that debate and there might be a third party who's not sure, you know, what to believe on a particular issue. But it's productive for that third party um, to hear from two different strong perspectives so they can make an informed decision. So we're, it's not to say, I mean, you should change who you are. Look, I'm a true, tried and true conservative, and I'm, I'm going to be, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I believe it. But I believe we should have all the ideas within the marketplace of ideas for those who are still deciding their own way to have the benefit of hearing from both perspectives. A lot of times, not all perspectives are heard. And I remember when we spoke at Berkeley, a few students came up to me and they were like, hey, you know, I appreciate you coming here because they're like, we don't often hear from conservatives because sometimes they'll get protested and things like that. And so it took little me, little, you know, low profile Bernie. I, no one's going to prote protest me. They don't know who I am. So I was able to be stealth. And so they're like, yeah, we don't hear these things on campus a lot of the time. I mean, some of the things I thought were just normal, people were just blown away, you know, by, by the different perspectives. But all of you should be heard and brought into the marketplace of ideas. I think that makes us a, a better country. Yeah, and I'll chime in after my partner to say it's been a privilege to share in this conversation with all of you, Liz, Marion, Derek, Bernie, and but you know, if we want to transition from being the divided states of America to the United States of America, then we need to have more intellectual humility, more listening, less canceling. And there's a quote that I love. I love, I love it. It's by Van Jones. It says, in a democracy, you won't always get to have your way, but you should always get to have your say. So I want people to remember that in a democracy, you won't always get to have your way. Your guy might not always be in office. You might not like what you see, but you should always get to have your say. That's good. That's wonderful. If I can pick up on that a little and just say, I think it's a time, we're living in a time where one thing is required is, is courage, you know, to step into the unknown, to, uh, paraphrase a famous Disney movie. Sorry, I got two daughters under 10. That's a really big thing in my life right now. But uh, in any case, 
you know, because this, this is scary stuff. It can be, and it, and it is, to, to walk into a relationship with someone, maybe you know them, maybe you don't know them, but from the past, knowing that they think differently than you do or even suspecting it and trying to establish a, a connection with that person. Nobody wants to be put down. Nobody wants to be, you know, yelled at or be have someone angry at them. And that's kind of the risk potentially you're taking. But we need to have the courage to face those kinds of things and to grow from them and and to to conquer, I guess, or to to succeed in that uh, endeavor, regardless of setbacks. Because it's like Jacob said, this is the real stuff. This is where we're going to fix things. It's not going to be in halls of Congress. It's not going to be in campaigns. Uh, those are always lagging indicators of culture, and culture is people interacting with each other. I love that, Derek, and. I think it's true that all of us have all the tools we need to do this. We just, we need to listen with curiosity. We need to make friends that are really different from us and lean in and, and trust the process. It'll be okay. I promise. I want to say to all of you all that I adore you. Knowing you all has changed my life. I I can't read your stories or listen to you speak without crying. Don't tell Jacob. I'm crying some more now. And I guess I want to challenge our audience that I do think that this is a human to human affair and endeavor. And, you know, maybe you can pull up, I promise I'd say something about our podcast. Um, This will be on the village square cast in a few weeks, the program, maybe you can pull up the program and invite a, a, a family member or a friend that you haven't talked with about politics into, into the breach and, and use this to start the conversation. And I, I, uh, you know, I mean, with this kind of inspiration, I, 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 really, I really do think we can do it. And I guess I then need to just thank you all again for being a part of this um, and spending your time with us tonight. And on behalf of Village Square and Florida Humanities Council and the Tallahassee Democrat, thanks to our audience for joining us. In the coming weeks, we'll announce a continuation of our series, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America, because we are bound and determined to do it. And we're going to have, this is a little, our little tickler. We're going to, it's going to involve another movie and two books. So we hope you'll join us. And you guys, thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. night. Hello again. It's Vanessa, your podcast host. Can I just say, I want to give all of these people a big old hug. Thank you so much for opening up these friendships for the rest of us to learn from. I found this program very refreshing, and it left me feeling hopeful. As I said in the beginning, I thought I was doing better on this than I am. And I've realized that when I do spend time with people who think differently than me, we usually don't talk about politics. I often avoid it because we're inside of another important relationship, and I don't want to rock the boat. But who am I kidding, really? I mean, leaving all this big stuff left unsaid leaves us to make often incorrect assumptions about each other and leaves us feeling polarized and misunderstood. And so I think ultimately not talking about it is part of the wedge between us. With that said, I do realize that this is so uncomfortable for most people, myself included, which reminds me of one of the very best pieces of career advice I received when I was probably around 22. It was about the personal growth and new opportunities that come from stepping outside your comfort zone. And ever since, anytime I've had that internal panic about new or unknown things, 
I think about this advice, and I've come to realize just how true and important of a lesson it is. And so now it occurs to me, what is the potential if we all try to step outside our comfort zone to learn something new from another perspective, from another person in our lives? So I'm ready to take Liz's challenge, and I invite you to join me. Let's find someone in our lives to be this kind of friend. And I think it can be fun too. Use this episode as an opening like Liz suggested. Ask them to listen and then meet for a drink or coffee to chat about what you heard. All right, since this program is all about friendship, we thought it would be a good time to thank some very special friends who go the extra mile in their support of the Village Square. A huge thank you to Robert Barrett, Sally and Paul Bradshaw, Brian Deloge, Jonathan Height, Nita and Paul Kirkpatrick, Terry and Fran Lewis, Ann Longman, Wellington Meffert and Carrie Roth, Greg Patterson, Steve and Jenna Seibert, and Josh Zellman. We'd also like to give another thanks to our event sponsors, Florida Humanities, Tallahassee Democrat, and Johnson and & Blanton. We appreciate you all so very much, and we couldn't deliver these programs without your support. Next up in our current season, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America, is a God Squad program called It's a Conspiracy. It's about the rise of conspiracy thinking in our civic discussion. To join us for this on Village Squarecast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. And if you'd like to participate in our live Zoom events, you can find all the details at villagesquare.us. That's also where you can sign up for our newsletter, which is a great way to be among the first to know about those new programs Liz mentioned. Remember, two books and a movie coming to you soon. We'd be so grateful if you drop us a review in Apple Podcasts. And we appreciate you listening to Let Friendship Redeem the Republic. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.